Welcome! Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We're so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we're gathering on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays for one service at 10. Come early for coffee and donuts at 9.30. We look forward to connecting with you. Um, I gotta be honest, So we're continuing our series in the book of Acts. We've been for the last uh, four weeks walking through the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a story, if you're unfamiliar with it, of how the early church kind of came to be. And it's a story of the early followers of Jesus, the people who walked beside him, knew him, um, and the story of how they followed him after he was raised from the dead and went to heaven. And as we've been going through this series, uh, today we are coming to Acts chapter 5. And I honestly, uh, it just felt a little comical and very waterstone. Uh, because we're having this huge party out in our parking lot, this giant uh, kind of like Fall Fest. By the way, a couple of years ago, Fall Fest was on my birthday, and I tried to change the name to Paul Fest, and they weren't having it. But that's all right. Um, it's still going to be fun, probably, so you should come. Uh, but we're having this huge party in our parking lot with free food and want lots of friends and, and, and people to engage. And then we have a sermon today from Acts chapter 5. And if you ha- are not familiar with the book of Acts, is that there's this progression that happens in Acts chapter for Acts chapter 5 into Acts chapter 6, where it talks about persecution. And I feel like it's so waterstone that we would be like, hey, let's have a party. And then while we're like worshiping Jesus, let's talk about like where the first Christians were like put in jail um, and just like go there. And that's kind of, if you're not familiar with waterstone, that is a little bit of our heart as we lean into hard spaces and hard conversations. Um, and so as we get going with this story today, I was uh, just reminded over the last couple of weeks, I, I don't know what it is, uh, but but I've had conversation after conversation after conversation uh, with people from our community and our church. And this phrase keeps popping up and it's, it's popped up so much that it, it kind of began to catch my ear and I begin asking questions to people as they say this phrase. But this is what I keep hearing. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Now, without context, you might hear that and think, oh man, it's like someone going through like a season of loneliness or depression, or are they, you know, struggling with cancer? What's going on? That phrase keeps coming up in conversation after conversation with people that I'm talking to, whether it's in the parking lot, coffee shops, one-on-one, or just passing each other as we get donuts on a Sunday morning. And what people are talking about is the state of the church. And what they really mean as I ask questions is there's this kind of sense, this feeling in the atmosphere that whatever is coming in the future is going to be harder for Christians than it has been in the the past, that it's going to get worse before it gets better. And there's this sense of of kind of fear or, or maybe worry about potential persecution for the church. And in conversation after, and here's what you got to know, okay, just being completely honest, is I feel so hesitant to talk about persecution in the church. Because if you talk to Nathan, who has been serving in Africa for the last 20 years, persecution looks very different there than anything that we're experiencing. Here's just a quick definition of persecution so we can kind of all be on the same page. Persecution is the suffering or pressure, mental, moral, or physical, which authorities, individuals, or crowds inflict on others, especially for opinions or beliefs, with a view to their subjection by recantation, silencing, or as a last resort, execution. So, So that's persecution. 
And from that definition, it's a little hard to say that that's what we're experiencing. So as we look at this story about persecution, we've got to understand it's not a one-for-one. In this story in Acts 5, there's actual persecution. People's lives are being threatened. When we're talking about persecution in our context, we're not talking about martyrdom. We're talking about marginalization. And there's a key difference in that that we have to understand because my fear in talking about this, just to be frank, is that I think sometimes evangelicals, we can have a persecution complex where we see anything that happens and we just think, oh man, they're out to get us. And we live in this fear of of persecution and constantly look for like this boogeyman of persecution in our lives. And that's not what I want to do today. And if you're here and you're a visitor and you're like, wow, what am I getting into? Um, You might be uh, not a believer and thinking like, actually, I kind of think like Christians should be marginalized a little bit. They've done some things the last couple of years that have been kind of like horrendous. And I probably don't disagree with you. But what we're talking about is marginalization today. And what does it look like for us to react to a culture of marginalization? And just an example of what I mean by marginalization. In the year 2000, there's a college campus ministry called InterVarsity. And they're in campuses all across the nation. Um, And it's a faith-based organization. And they're really just trying to minister to college students as they're going through uh, these formative years of college. And In the year 2000, uh, campuses began to kind of expel this ministry uh, from their campuses. And the reason why they said that InterVarsity couldn't be there anymore was for two reasons. And, And the two reasons were this. Um, they drew, this is uh, Tish Warren, who is a person who was involved with InterVarsity when it was being um, expelled from Vanderbilt University. Um, she's a political moderate and follower of Jesus, and this is what she said. The line between good and evil was drawn around two issues, creedal belief and sexual expression. And so if religious groups on campuses required a set truths that people had to adhere to, or expectations around limited sexual autonomy, then they were seen as bad. And not just wrong, but evil, narrow-minded, and too dangerous to be tolerated on campus. And so across the country, a number of different campuses began kind of pushing this organization out of their universities. And they said, you can stay, but if you stay, then you have to be willing to let anyone participate in your organization and be in leadership. And so if an atheist says they want to be a a part and a leader of this Christian ministry, then you have to allow them to do that. And that's what I mean by marginalization. It's not open persecution. It's not no one's life is being threatened. But it's just saying we don't like your beliefs, and so we're just going to kind of push you to the margins of our kind of public discourse. And I think that's the conversation that we need to have today is when that happens, when and if the church experiences some sort of, of marginalization or hostility towards the church, how do we respond in those instances? What is the posture of followers of Jesus in those moments? You see why I think it's so funny that we're talking about this when we have a big party afterwards? Like, what are we doing? Um, And that's where I want to go today, is look at this story from Acts 5 and ask that question, how do we respond when we experience marginalization? So if you look at Acts chapter 4, 5, and 6, there's this kind of progression that happens in these stories. And what happens is the disciples are brought before the temple courts, the Sanhedrin. They're kind of the religious leaders and pastors of the day. And the religious leaders don't like what the apostles or the disciples are preaching. And so in Acts chapter 4, they say, hey, you have got to stop preaching. 
we don't want you talking about Jesus anymore. We don't want you telling all these people about who Jesus is or what he's done or the grace that he's offering or the forgiveness. Like you're upsetting our religious power structure and, and our church. And so you need to stop preaching. But they're not really sure what to do about it because everybody is loving what the disciples are doing. They're healing people. They're helping people with hurts and wounds and people are finding freedom and joy and new life. And so they can't threaten these people because what they're doing is actually valuable to the the culture that they're a part of. And so they say, you better stop or else. And it's kind of like when a parent gives an empty threat, right? It's like, hey, yeah, you'll go to timeout or something. Like something will happen to you if you keep going. This is what they do. And so that happens in Acts chapter 4. And then Acts chapter 5, you see this kind of progression. They continue preaching, but then they're put in jail for continuing to preach. And then the progression continues in Acts chapter 6 where they continue to preach and not only are they threatened and then imprisoned, but someone is actually killed for following the name of Jesus. And so we find ourselves in the middle of this story, this kind of growing marginalization and persecution where the disciples, they're preaching in the temple courts and they're sharing the name of Jesus and the Sadducees hear it and they arrest them, they put them in jail. And in the middle of the night, while the apostles, the disciples, the friends of Jesus are in this jail cell, an angel comes and opens the gate, lets them go free and commands them to go back to the temple courts the next morning and preach the gospel again. And so the Sadducees, these religious leaders who have imprisoned the disciples, they gather that morning and they think, okay, we're going to bring these people in. We've got to decide what to do with them. We've kind of given an empty threat. Now they're in jail. Like, what do we do to get this to stop? And so they go to the jail cell with the guards and they say, bring them to us. And the guards come back and say, they're not there. The gate's locked. The guards are in place. And there's nobody inside the jail. We don't know where they are. And they're all confused and not sure what's happening and wondering what's going on. And then they begin hearing reports that the people they had imprisoned and put in jail are actually back in the temple courts preaching. And so they go to them, and it says that instead of arresting them, they ask them to come with them because they're afraid that if they use force, the people who are there will be so angry about how they're treating the apostles that they will, they will revolt against the guards. And so they just kind of ask them to quietly come with them. And the disciples are put on trial before the Sanhedrin, this religious leadership group. And this is what um, they say. The apostles were brought, beginning in uh, verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Notice they won't even say the name of Jesus. In this name, and he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. He's talking again about Jesus. And then Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. I want to sit on this last statement of Peter just for a little bit. Because one of the forever tensions about the book of Acts, and we talked about this the very first week, is is the book of Acts prescriptive in that it's telling us as followers of Jesus what we're supposed to do, or is the book of Acts descriptive and it just tells us what they did and we get into some trouble when we just start doing everything that they did. And so I'd actually just throw it out to you now. When Peter says, we're called to obey God, not man, 
by just show of hands, and, and if you're like, I don't even really know what this conversation is, that's okay. Um, you can just kind of like do what your neighbor does and they won't know, okay? So would you say that this command, obey God, not man, is that prescriptive? Is that telling us what we're supposed to do today? Show of hands, anyone think it's prescriptive? Okay, number of people, great. And then anyone think it's just kind of descriptive? This was a specific thing for the apostles and it's not really, like if we start doing that, then we might get in trouble. Anyone think it's just descriptive? Like four, okay, all right? So um, here's the truth, is I don't know. Um, and I'm a pastor and you might be like, hey, you're supposed to have all the answers. That's like kind of why you're here. Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I think there's a tension that we see in scripture when it comes to obeying authorities and when to disobey authorities. So in this story, Peter says, hey, I'm sorry, the angel that released us from prison said we have to preach the name of Jesus, and you're telling us we're not supposed to do that, and we have to obey God. We can't obey that command. These commands are in direct conflict with one another. And then later in Peter's life, he writes a letter to the early church that, that's being killed for their faith and being persecuted and sent into all regions of the world. And this is what he writes. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Same person, in different seasons, in different stages, in different places, has two completely different answers. And I think what we need to recognize in that is that being a Christian in a society that, that maybe is causing some marginalization or some tension around what we believe, is that there are no easy answers. We don't just get to say, hey, I just have to obey God and not man, so I get to drive as fast as I want on the highway, right? Uh, Nathan gave me that example. I was like, I don't know if I want to go there. That might be a little too close to home. My fear is that we read that statement from Peter that says we have to obey God and not man, and we don't read it as prescriptive or descriptive, but as permissive. And we just think it gives us permission to live and act however we want and just choose which things we'll follow and which things we won't. And that's not the heart of what Peter is doing in this moment. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, the amount of respect and difference that the apostles show even when their lives are threatened. They, they come before the, the people here and they're not trying to win an argument. They're not trying to protect themselves. They're not trying to win some culture war. They're trying to be obedient to Jesus. And where that gets in conflict and where they begin to feel tension about obedience to authority and obedience to Jesus, that's where they draw the line. This is what um, <clears throat> John Stott, a, a famous theologian, he said this. Since the state's authority has been delegated by God, we are sub to submit right up to the point where disobedience to the state would involve disobedience to God. At that point, it is our Christian duty to disobey the state in order to obey God. You see how narrow that window is? It doesn't mean we just get to do whatever we want if we don't like what's happening in our government or in our country or in our society or in our school. 
See, I think one of the tensions and one of the temptations we have in these spaces is to kind of read this as permissive and then we just kind of do whatever we want and think we are outside of the law because we we're obeying God. And I'm not sure that that's what Peter is calling the early church to. I'm not sure that's what he's doing in this moment. We are called to obey God and give him our first allegiance. And I think this idea of obedience in this space, it's, it's actually not a matter of conscience. We don't just get to decide based on what we feel. It's a matter of allegiance. It's what does God command explicitly and where we are called to obey that and where culture maybe tells us to disobey that, that's where the line is drawn. I hate even using this example because hopefully we're just like past it and we don't even ever have to go back to this. But that was one of the reasons why when, when local authorities said like, hey, church can't meet during COVID, and, and they said we were non-essential, and we, we disagree with that. Church is essential for society and people. And yet we chose to obey because they didn't tell us we couldn't preach the gospel. And, and you better believe if they said, hey, you can't meet and you can't preach the gospel, Larry would be up here every Sunday morning preaching the gospel. But when they said we couldn't meet and they were trying to figure out what to do, we think, yeah, okay, we'll respect authority because that's what Peter did and that's what the early apostles did as long as we're not disobeying Jesus. And that's, that's kind of the ethos that we want to have as a church and, and ways we want to step in to these hard places. Where is our ultimate allegiance to we don't just have free reign to decide to do whatever we want. And so in persecution and marginalization, our ultimate allegiance and obedience is to God, but it also still matters how we engage with the world. And what you see from Peter in this next section is that as they're kind of telling him this, like, you have to stop. You cannot continue to preach. This is what Peter's response is to them. He says, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Tara, can you leave this up just for a few moments? Because what I want us to notice is the reason why they were furious. That the reason why they wanted to put them to death was because of what they said, not how they said it. You see, they say you have to stop preaching about Jesus and stop telling people about what he's done and the way he's changed your life and the way he's changing the world. And they said, we have to tell that story. And so they preach the same message that they've preached throughout the book of Acts. They say that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He was dead, and now he's alive. He has conquered death. And they say he's been exalted to the prince of this world. He is now king, and he is ruling, and his will and his rule and reign are coming to fruition in the world. And all the things that are broken about our world in the name of Jesus are beginning to be fixed and healed. And they say that, that Jesus is the one who has the power to forgive us of our sins and the shame that we carry and the ways that, that, that we've done things that we regret. Jesus can heal those places in our lives. We have to preach that story. But notice that they don't preach what they're against. They don't tell all the ways that the other people are wrong. They just say, this is what we believe, this is who Jesus is, and this is a story that we have to tell. Jesus has changed everything 
I think sometimes for us, it's so easy to get to a place where it, it is so much easier to critique the world around us than it is to tell the truth. And we, we kind of get into this place where we think, well, if I just preach the truth and if I just tell people the truth, then that's the loving thing to do. And it doesn't matter how the truth comes out, I just have to tell the truth because that's the loving thing to do. I think the early apostles would disagree with that. They preached the truth, but they displayed love to the people, even their enemies who were threatening their lives because they believed in the story of Jesus, that he had been exalted, that he was reigning, that he was making all things new, and that he could forgive sins. I was talking to my daughter this past week, and um, poor thing, she's, she's three years old, and she's just at that stage where she's like sick all the time. She goes to the preschool here, and I don't know what happens, all the kids show up like healthy, and then somehow all the germs mix together and they all leave sick, right? Like it's just something that happens when you're three. And she's just sick all the time. She's got this terrible cough. We can't get rid of it. And the other day she was coughing and she was like, it was just sad. She was sad about how sick she was. And she goes, that's just the way God made me. <laughs> I was like, oh, baby. And then because I'm a pastor, and for whatever reason, I was like, oh, actually, baby, she's three. Say, that's not the way God made you. Is that actually God made us to be healthy and whole, but the world is broken. She's three, and I'm explaining to her like the fall for some reason. And I'm like, that's not true, baby. Like God made you whole, and he wants you to be healthy, and we live in a world that got broken. And as I tell her this, she just looks at me and kind of thinks for a minute, and I don't, I don't know where she got this, but she goes, do you think maybe Jesus could fix that? Was, yeah, I know, I know. But that's it, Right? Like, that's the story we believe. As we look at this world full of corruption or war or disease or famine or heartache and heartbreak and shame and guilt and brokenness, and we look at the story of Jesus and we think, maybe he can fix it. Maybe he can do something about it. That's the story that we believe as Christians. And for some reason, I think when we begin to experience marginalization, we can lose sight of that story. And instead of telling the world all the places that Jesus can fix, we just point out all the places where it's broken and why it's their fault. I wonder what would happen if we kind of shifted our perspective and we weren't so bent on critiquing the culture that we're a part of but just sharing the good news that maybe Jesus could fix what's ailing our world. And that's the example I think we see from the apostles in this moment. And here's the thing, is even though they are speaking in love and respect and kindness, it still made some people angry. It, it still wasn't the message that everyone wanted to hear. But the method matters just as much as the message. And if we are called to obey God and not man, that means we are called to obey all of his commands, including loving our enemies. I love the way that um, one theologian, he, he puts it this way, Daniel Darling. He says, the idea that the current moment means we should jettison biblical traits like kindness or gentleness, unity, lack of quarrelsomeness, or et cetera, is foreign to the New Testament, written predominantly by men about to be killed for their faith, to people about to be killed for their faith. You see, there's this, this ethos that the early church had that I think sometimes we have lost in our, our kind of evangelical world, 
where, where we have this desire for Christ to permeate our culture and change our culture, but we've forgotten that the first responsibilities of followers of Jesus is that Christ is supposed to permeate us, that, that we follow his example of self-giving love, and that when we are pushed to the margins, we don't respond with hostility. We don't push back and fight fire with fire. We don't choose to engage the world. We don't resort to political gains to try to protect ourselves. We trust the story of Jesus. See, I've been convicted about this because I grew up in a culture that was all about, like, we got to get prayer back in schools, or we got to get the, the Ten Commandments back on the courthouse steps. And those might be good things. I think prayer is a great thing. But are we fighting so hard to get prayer back in schools when we're not even praying in our own homes? Or are we fighting so hard to make sure the Ten Commandments are on the county steps, but are they written on our hearts? Do we follow God's commands to love our neighbor as ourself? You see, we can try to change culture, and I wonder if something the early church learned is that they're not out to win a culture war. They're out to follow Jesus and live for him. And that's where the change and transformation happens. That's where the good news is proclaimed. I saw someone this week on social media, and it's always kind of bad to bring up social media examples because most of us in this room know that it's the bad place, right? That we're just like not supposed to go there. There's not a lot of good that happens there. But, but I saw this person interacting on social media this week, and they said, that they have no trouble mocking someone who disagrees with their faith and disagrees with Jesus. And then what killed me is they told this person who said, I don't really see Jesus in that. It doesn't seem like that's how Jesus lived. And I'm not sure that, that as a non-believer, that's what I want to hear. And this person's response was, well, Jesus had no trouble mocking people who disagreed with him either. Which just crushed me. That's not what Jesus has called us to. That's not the way that Jesus lived. And I think that there's this temptation in the church to resort to means that are available to us in the world to try to protect ourselves or get our message out there. But the method matters just as much as the method. We're not called to mock, but to be kind in our truth and loving What's fascinating is as Peter preaches this example and says, this is what we believe and this is who Jesus is and we can't stop and they show this, this reverence and respect for the people they're engaging with, is there's a, a teacher who's listening to this entire interaction and his name is Gamaliel. And Gamaliel to this day is one of the most revered rabbis in all of Judaism. And he stands up after he hears Peter and they're all trying to decide what to do and they're, they're furious, they want to kill these men. And he stands up and says, hey, you know, we had so-and-so who rose up and led a revolt and tried to lead the people astray. And when he died, the whole movement died out. And there's another man named Judas. And so he led a revolt and all the people followed him and were excited about what he was doing, but he was killed and the movement stopped. And he said, Jesus is dead. So if this is from God, then it will continue but if it's of human origins, then it will go away. 
And this is the, the actual verse, just so you can see it. He says, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, just leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So he gives this whole speech, and basically this is the point of of these kind of uh, three chapters in the book of Acts, Acts 4, 5, and 6, where we see the persecution of the church beginning. Is this speech is Luke kind of setting up the rest of the story, and he's saying that if God is a part of this, then nothing can stop it. Like, if God is in this, then judge for yourselves whether or not you think it's just a bunch of men who are making up a story or whether or not you think God is actually doing something new and different. And we know from the rest of the book of Acts that by the time the book is over, these men who are on trial right here and and their lives are being threatened have taken the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done in the world, from this little council all the way to the Roman Empire, to the very house of Caesar, the gospel is being preached. It's as Luke is kind of nudging the reader and saying, like, judge for yourselves, but look at how far this went. This is not just of human origin. I mean, the fact that we are sitting together in this room today is because the story we believe about Jesus is not just true, but it is from God. And that's what we believe. And I wonder if sometimes when we experience marginalization or we experience some hostility from culture, we forget that whatever moment we find ourselves in, it's not up to us. That that God is the one who is in control and God is the one who is writing this story and God is the one who is bigger than human history and every society and every culture. I mean, there's a reason why Larry said last week that Christianity has walked through the ruins of every culture that it's been a part of. That as cultures rise and fall, Christianity has remained. And there have been a lot of moments where Christianity has not lived up to the call. And there are a lot of moments where Christianity has failed in following Jesus. And yet, despite all of that, God has been at work writing the story. You know, it was was fascinating. A couple of weekends ago, I uh, had the privilege to get to go to London and learn um, from the church there about what it means to be the church in the post-Christian world and setting. And the, the church in England and London, they're, they're probably about 30 years ahead of us culturally. They really have moved past Christianity, their post-Christian culture, um, to the point where most people don't have any kind of a affiliation with the church anymore. I'd say here, most people at least have some sort of understanding about the story. There's still, honestly, like probably a bad taste is left in most people's mouths from about what the church has done and where they're at. But, but there, there's just kind of like a clean palate. No one has any understanding or, or engagement with the church. And we were talking to these different pastors and pastors in Sweden and London. And one of the things that was so convicting for me as I was talking to these pastors is one pastor in particular, he said, it does not matter what I do or how much I work or how hard I work for the church or how hard I work for the kingdom of God. If I have not prayed, I have not done enough. 
You see, as they've moved into this post-Christian setting, they're recognizing more and more and more that if God does not show up, if the Holy Spirit is not a part of what we are doing, if the Holy Spirit is not a part of the moments where we are serving the hungry in our food pantry or going out and painting um, ministries or, or helping underprivileged kids, if the Holy Spirit is not a part of those places, then we are wasting our time. Because our movement is not about human effort or human energy or how hard we try. It is about God's work in this world and us joining that and being a part of that. My fear is that in moments of marginalization, we can forget that it's not about us. That we are called to be faithful to God and dependent on His Spirit. I think the temptation is to resort to, to political power or social power or different ways, I mean, our, our wealth, and just try to, to force our way into the public spaces and think that we just have to work harder to try to win our culture back. And we're completely independent of the work of the Spirit. It was so convicting. Another theologian, Scott Sauls, he says this about Christianity. He says, historically, Christians have most influenced society not as culture warriors, but as praying, worshiping, giving, neighbor-loving minority. If given the opportunity, would we return to that? Or are partisanism and power now preferred as our Lord and Savior? See, I think that's the question as we step into some of these spaces around tension around our faith, is do we believe this story is God's? Do we believe that God is in control, whatever might be happening in our world? And that our responsibility is not to win some culture war, but to worship and pray and remain faithful in how we love our neighbors? That we don't have to resort to the, the means of this world to try to protect ourselves or get what we want because we believe Jesus is king. He is risen and he has forgiven us. And so we can forgive our enemies as we have been forgiven. We can love those who persecute us or marginalize us because Christ loved us when we persecuted him. See, Jesus changes the way we interact with the world. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to say it's going to get worse before it gets better because we don't know the future, but we know that Christ wins in the end. And that's our hope. What's fascinating about the apostles in the early churches, so they have this whole interaction, and Gamaliel says, like, let's just let them go. Let's not do anything. We don't want to kill them. Let's just see what God is going to do. And then they decide to, to kind of send them a message. They're going to punish them. And so they flog them um, and then let them go. And this is the response of the apostles. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. See, I think when we experience marginalization or, or hostility, there's a choice we have. It can cause us to resent the culture we're a part of, resent the people that we're called to love, or we can rejoice. 
that we have been counted worthy to follow Jesus in spaces where people are opposed to him and to us. So the fascinating thing about InterVarsity, that, that ministry that I mentioned at the beginning of the message, is that all of this kind of controversy around their ministry began in the year 2000, and then actually the, the Supreme Court had a ruling that said that they needed to be allowed in schools, but all organizations had to have this kind of all-or-welcome policy for who's on their leadership, because it, it wasn't fair to discriminate against religious people. But, but since that moment, these are some of the things that have happened in InterVarsity over the last five to 10 years. Today, inner varsity's reports of conversion are up 172% from the 10 years previous. And in the past four years, inner varsity has grown at a double digit rate, increasing their presence on more than 100 new campuses. And now, though, where they used to be ministering to about 30,000 students nationwide, they're somewhere between 40 to 50 students nationwide. You see, what if marginalization is not something to be afraid of, but something to embrace? What if it's actually the very spaces where God is at work and it gets us back to the roots of who we are called to be as followers of Jesus? What's fascinating is, is how InterVarsity beat this was not by going to the Supreme Court and asking for protection. It was by giving donuts to the groups who were protesting them and praying for them. That's what we're called to be as followers of Jesus. We don't have to be afraid of whatever might be coming, and it may get worse before it gets better. I don't know. But I know who Jesus is and who he has called us to be in these spaces. And what if as we step into those spaces, the calling is to follow his example of self-giving love, proclaim the truth of who he is and what he's done for us and the way he is changing our world, yes. But in the name of his loving sacrifice. I think the question for us as a church, Waterstone, is will we rise to that occasion? So one of the frustrating things for me about the book of Acts is I look at the things that happen in the early church and I see the healings and I see the ways people's lives were changed and I, I see the way the spirit was active in the early church and I wonder why them and not us? Like why can it feel like so many mornings the, the church is dormant or the Holy Spirit is sleeping on the job? And I wonder if the reality is, is we have not invited him into those spaces. We are not dependent on him to show up for us. We think we have it on our own strength. We can make what hap needs to happen in the world happen. And what if as we are maybe experiencing some of this marginalization, we are actually being called to a space where we rely on the presence of the Holy Spirit instead of ourselves. We live out the ethic of who Jesus is instead of our own strength or our own power. What if that's the very space where societal transformation in people's lives can be changed? What if that's the place where our faith can be changed? May that be true for us, the people of Waterstone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that if we have placed our faith in you, if we believe that you are the one on the throne, that God, whatever may come, we do not have to be afraid. 
that God, you are faithful to us. And so if anyone is here today and and feels worried or, or afraid of the future, God, I just pray your spirit of comfort on them. God, for all of us, I ask for your Holy Spirit to come and reign on our hearts. That we would seek dependence on you, trust in you. That we would know if we've done all we can for the kingdom, but we haven't prayed, we haven't done enough. God, may you even begin to just shift our hearts and how we engage with the world. Cause us to, to love our neighbors as you have loved us. As we sang earlier, God, may we be known by our love. God, as we are about to sing, may you be magnified in our lives. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.